Welcome to C3 Church, Queen's Beach. We believe Jesus Christ gives life to the full and we are called to live it and share it. We pray you enjoy this message today. He spoke about his church, leave his church, he would, uh, you know, if the preacher was really on fire, they'd go, yeah, preach, preach. And so I was there with Eve, yeah, preach, preach. And then at other times, the boy wasn't doing so well, so help the boy, Jesus, help the boy. So, so I'm not sure which one you're going to come out with tonight, anyway, we'll see how we go. <laughs> Eve, you said that well. Thank you so much for your warm welcome. It is nice to be, to be back up here, and uh, I really do enjoy it. To uh, C3 QB. It's wonderful. Great to be here again. As he mentioned, you've been looking at the, the parables of Jesus and looking at the ones that talk about what is the kingdom like. And so when Nicole um, and Steve asked me to come to speak, I thought, well, I'd like to try and slot into that um, into that series as well. And so that's what I'm going to do today. We're going to continue that theme of looking at what exactly is God's kingdom like. And so as we as I thought about that, I thought, well, we looked at the, the same passage, the same um, chapter in Matthew that, that Steve looked at, Matthew 13. And to continue to look at this theme, we look at two very small, very short parables within that chapter. They might be small. But they pack a punch. They've got a lot of lessons in there for us that we can learn. And those of you who know me, know me that uh, many years ago I studied Greek. And I'm thinking, oh man, I remember my Greek. Well, I do remember something. We are talking over 30 years ago. But one of the things I did remember was that the, the, the P-A-R-A, para. I don't know. And so it was good for some of my Greek to come back. And we think then what a parable is. Well, a parable is a story with a hidden truth beside it. And so that's what we want to look at. That there's, there's truth within the parables. There's something, a story alongside the actual story that Jesus tells. So that's the meaning from, from the Greek, but I actually like the meaning that I was taught in Sunday school many, many years ago. And perhaps you were taught the same thing as well. What's a parable? It's a heavenly story. Sorry, the other way around. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so that's what we can look at as well. But we can see the heavenly meaning from the stories that Jesus told. So today, let's begin to examine these two very important parables in Matthew 13. One about treasure and the other about a pearl, a great worth and beauty. A few weeks ago, as I mentioned, Steve spoke about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Now, the wheat and the wheat is much longer parable, much, much longer, and it came with an explanation, which is kind of cool. But this parable we're looking at today is much, much shorter. So we look at the parable of the wheat and weeds, or like some other parables, they were told to the disciples and the crowds. Some people understood the parables, while some just couldn't understand. The wheat and the wheat parable was explained to the disciples, as I mentioned. And it was told to the crowds. Some people understood, others didn't. Some hearts were discerning and hungry to hear the truth, while others just rejected it 
or they just couldn't grasp the truth that was written there, that was spoken to them. So interestingly, the parables we're about to read were told only to the disciples. That's it, just to the disciples. And when Jesus asked them if they understood, I'm thinking, say no, because then we'll get the explanation. <laughs> but no, what does it say in Matthew 13, 51? Do you understand these things, Jesus asked them? Yes, they answered. Yes, they got it. But we don't get the explanation. Anyway, so while Jesus gave no explanation for these parables, parables um, like the others, we then need to use our decoding skills. We need to think about, well, how do we decode the map? How do we decode the treasure map that is there? So use our decoding skills here to discern what treasure Jesus has in store for us and how we can find that treasure. So then let's read Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Just called in my Bible, the parable of the hidden treasure that reading the Good News translation. So the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man happens to find a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up again. And he's so happy that he goes and sells everything he has and then goes back and buys the field. The parable of the pearl. Also, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man is looking for fine pearls. And when he finds one that is unusually fine, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that pearl. Well, let's look at these two parables to see what God has in store for us. First of all, we're going to look at the parable of the treasure in the field. So the kingdom of heaven is seen as like hidden treasure. So Jesus is using a simile here, it's kind of, I guess, the, the, the teacher kind of be back going. So he's using a simile that, oh, okay. The simile's been made to make a comparison. It's explaining what something is like. So the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure. Now it's important to note two things here. Firstly, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, we're really talking about the same thing. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven frequently. You don't look at it through the gospel, you see kingdom of heaven coming through over and over again. The kingdom of God does show up, but only a couple of times. So scholars have suggested that's because he's being sensitive to the Jewish audience at the time. And they didn't like to mention the name for God. Um, they didn't just didn't like to mention God's name. So Matthew avoids mentioning God's name and uses the kingdom of heaven instead. So one might say kingdom of heaven, we're talking about God's kingdom of God. And secondly, well, what actually is the kingdom of God? We're getting all this into what it's like, a hidden treasure and pearls and so on, or reading reads, and we're learning all these, the parable of the sower. So we're getting kind of glimpses of what actually is the kingdom of God. What are the, you know, it's talked about so often in the Bible. In fact, Jesus came speaking about the kingdom of God. He says, turn away from your sins, because the kingdom of heaven is near, it's Matthew 4, 17. So sometimes people think that the kingdom of God is a physical place. Like saying, I looked them up, I thought, where are the kingdoms around the world? We've got the kingdom of Brunei, we've got the kingdom of Monaco, we've got Spain. Each of these has kings, and a lot of other places as well that have a, a king or a, a, a monarch. But it's not actually a physical place, like say the kingdom of Brunei. It's God's spiritual realm, His rule within us. It existed before, it exists now, 
And yet it's not completed because we know that there is more to come. There is a future element to God's kingdom as well. Anyway, let's get back to the parable. A man's out in his field and he stumbles across treasure that's hidden there. He somehow hit the jackpot. Walking along, or somehow finding his treasure, he's out in the valley. So how did he come to find buried treasure? And, and the peculiar brain in me goes up and thinks, why was it actually there in the first place? How did he find it? Anyway, he found it. So how did he come to find that buried treasure? Well, I read that the famous first century Jewish historian, his name was Josephus, he recorded that wealthy Jewish individuals actually buried their wealth as a means of keeping it safe. And it kind of makes sense. They might not have trusted others to keep their money and their wealth safe. And the Romans, they invaded their land. So best to keep your valuables in the ground. That way, no one can find them. Except this one. <laughs> so they just had to make sure that they remembered where their treasure was buried. And I think that's very important. For some of us, that would be quite a worry. We perhaps forget where we even park our car. <laughs> so let alone remember where we buried the treasure. You know, a couple of years ago, probably about five years ago, someone who remained nameless was over in Sydney and, and had a borrowed car and took out his 90-year-old mother to a big shopping centre, drove into the shopping centre, parked the car, took his mother shopping and uh, came out to get the car to pick her up and she was quite, not, not brilliant in mobile, so needed to be in one of the bays. And this particular person who really should remain nameless couldn't find the car. And he's looking for it. Where did he find the car? And in the end, he had to call up the security and say, hey, it was me. I lost the car. I said, what sort of car is it? I said, well, it's a white one. Um, I borrowed it. I said, I think it's a white Subaru. But I said, I have no idea which level I parked it on. And so they came up with their golf cart buggy and drove around, and they could use the security, and they found the car. So for me, that was like finding a treasure in a car park. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Anyway, back in Jesus' time, buried the treasure. Did you keep the treasure back? I hope so. Remember where you buried the treasure. So one of Jesus' other parables possibly alludes to this practice, by the way. When Jesus told the parable of the gold bags, or you might know as the parable of the talents, and while I won't go right through it, it's in Matthew 25 if you want to pick it up, he talks about the parable of the talents, and of course the three servants were given different amounts of gold, or, or bags of gold, as it's called, or talents. One's given five, one's given two, one's given one. So the person that's given the five invests it really wisely, and gets an astronomical return after I'm not quite sure how long it was, but after some time. Great return of five more. The one that was given two also made an astronomical return. We kind of say that the one that had two must have done as well, but he doubled the money as well. So double came back. Then the third one, well, he buried it. And was able to give it back, but no return of investment. But then the, the reason I mentioned the story is, of course, the guy dug a hole for the money. He buried the treasure. Um, is that the way we should go? It just seems to me like, yes, people did bury their treasure in those days. So maybe it was a fairly common practice for treasure to be buried in those times. So coming back to our parable though, who was this man and what was he doing in the field? We don't really know. 
He could have been someone just walking through the field, or more, more likely, he was actually working in the field. He's got some sort of ditty implement, and suddenly he realises, that's not like the normal sound that I get when I dig my stick into the, into the ground. And he uncovers, of course, the hidden treasure. Some different noise as he finds a box, but perhaps containing this great treasure. So he just finds it. He wasn't looking for it at all. And it was hidden that he discovered it. However, and this is what I find really strange, he doesn't just pick it up, thank his lucky stars, and put it in the saddlebags of his donkey, or somehow, I don't know, try to carry it off. He doesn't do that at all. I find it a bit weird. He covers the treasure back up and hides it again. So he doesn't want to steal the treasure. He discovers it and then he pays a high price for the land. But he understands the worth. He understands the value of the treasure. So for me being peculiar, I thought again, I thought, hang on. You are being a little bit deceptive here. That's how I felt. I thought about that. Does anyone else think that? He's actually kind of hiding it back up, being a little bit deceptive. Anyway, I read that unless there was a name attached to the treasure, like someone said, okay, this belongs to such and such, then the man actually did what he did. was actually perfectly legal. Not a problem at all. It was actually appropriate for him to go and buy the field with the buried treasure. So basically he sells absolutely everything, whatever he, he had, whether it's his house, donkeys, sheep, camels, furniture, clothes, I don't know, he sold everything, literally everything. I think, man, you paid a lot. But when we think about it, he sells up everything with joy. So how can someone be so happy to give up everything? So the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is seen as something incredibly valuable that is worth giving everything up for. And it brings the man great joy, such you know, incredibly abundant happiness to give his all to purchase this treasure. No reluctance, no grumbling, no second thoughts. God's kingdom is of such infinite value that we happily give up everything. Well, that's the first parable. Now let's look at the second one, about something of immense wealth. The parable of what's become known as the pearl of great price. So these two parables, both short, they're kind of like twins, actually. They go together. Very similar themes, and they're linked by the word also that sits right between them. So if you want to emphasise something, well, you repeat it in a slightly different way. Jesus is using this technique here of repetition to get his point across. So he tells a very similar story to illustrate again the value of the kingdom. And he uses the simile of the pearl instead of the treasure here. So treasure and then pearl. That seems an interesting comparison to me. So finding treasure we can understand, but a pearl doesn't have the same worth. But when you look through history, you begin to understand the value of the pearl. Now, pearls were used in jewellery in the Greco-Roman world. Actually, as I did some research, I found a picture of an earring that they say had been worn somewhere between the 1st and the 4th centuries. And then in early English history, pearls were only to be worn by people in the elite of society. So the nobility actually outlawed anyone else not above high social stature from wearing the pearls. And I thought, okay, some of these pearls must be worth quite a lot. 
And I don't know if you remember reading, perhaps last year, I think it was last year, one of my former students at Kingsway was in the newspaper for finding a pearl of incredible value. Anyone ever seen the story? Last year. I'm in Broome, he worked at Willie Creek Pool, Pearl Farm, and he was taking tours out, and as he took out the tour, they would open up a, uh, an oyster, or whatever they're called, I did read the name of it, open up the, the oyster and see what was inside. Now these are cultured pearls, and he would, he, apparently he picked a, an oyster that he thought, hmm, this one might be a bit dodgy. He thought the, the poor oyster wasn't looking so good. But as he opened it up, and found the pearl that was inside, they were astonished to find something that was incredibly amazing. So much so that they said it was worth about $150,000, one pearl. It was greater than 20 millimeters across. So his name's Caleb, Caleb Van Veen, former student and a good friend of uh, the Rick and Jordans. So he found this pearl of incredible value then. Um, incredible value because of one of its size, its shape, its color, its luster, the thickness of the outer layer of nacre. So he found a pool worth an awful lot of money, and that was just last year. But I thought, that's a cultured pool. Caleb knew where to look for the thing. How do, how do we go? How did they go in the other in you know, Jesus' time? How did they find their pools? Because in Jesus' time, I'm sure that they must have been incredibly difficult to find. Did they go along and jump out of a boat holding a rock to get them down quick to the bottom and then forage for a couple of oysters and then hope one of them might have had something inside? I don't really know. Did they go around to the intertidal region and prize off the oysters and just find a pearl by luck? Because in a sense, that's what I'm thinking they would have to do. It's not like working up a Willie Creek um, pearl farm where the pearl has been very surgically looked up. Look it up, have a look at how they actually surgically implant the irritant to make the pearl. It really is quite interesting. It's not the grain of sand as I thought. It's actually a little tiny bit of shell with some sort of organic matter as well, which then the oyster begins to put the coating over and over to make these beautiful natural gems. But back in the first century, Jesus obviously knew about people having pearls, but I'm thinking that to find them would have been incredibly difficult and therefore any, anything that's difficult to find becomes something of very, very high value. So now we can understand the worth of the pearl and why this man, sometimes referred to as a merchant by the way, desperately wants to acquire it. So the Good News Bible says that this pearl that was found was unusually fine. The NIV says it was of great value. So it was a pearl that was worthy of the time spent searching, an exquisite, flawless, high-priced gem of exceptional value. So similar to the first parable, the man in this story sells all that he has because he just has to purchase that pearl, the pearl of great price. So like the man who brought the land, who bought the land, this man or this merchant sells his house, sells his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, the whole lot, just to get the finance together to purchase one pearl. It's the one that he's been searching diligently for. Finally finds it, and he has to have it, and he will pay all that he has for it. And here's the interesting thing. Just like the man with the treasure, he's not reluctant or begrudging at all. He willingly parts with all that he has to purchase the one thing of great value. So it doesn't seem to matter whether you're actively searching, like in the second parable, 
or whether the treasury somehow just stumbled upon, as in the first parable, in both instances, the person who finds the treasure or the pearl, they realise the worth of the find and they happily give up everything to access that treasure. So in a sense, these parables somehow probably don't even need great in-depth explanations. They are simply giving us a graphic example of how incredibly valuable is God's kingdom. It's worth selling up everything, absolutely everything, to gain the incredible treasure or to gain an exquisite, flawless gem. So clearly both the man in the field and the merchant, they found their great treasures. So how do we decode this treasure map? What is the treasure for us today? And how do we find it? So like the man who finds the treasure, he sells everything to purchase the land. We too need to be willing to give up everything to surrender control of our lives to God, to allow him to direct our path. It's allowing God to have spiritual reign over our life, to be welcomed into his kingdom and his rule. So the kingdom being present now in our lives, we don't buy the kingdom, of course. It's provided as a free gift um, of God because of Christ's work on the cross. So it's a case of, it's not a case of holding something back. You know, hey Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but I'm just going to hang on to these couple of areas of my life, just, just, just for me. But actually God wants all of us. He wants us all in, totally in, not holding anything back in reserve, totally surrendered to him and allowing him to direct our lives, willing to give it all up for him. And yet it's kind of ironic that as we give up everything, our sense of control, instead of being egocentric in how we live our lives, we step back and become God-centric. We allow God to have control. And um, as we allow God to have control, we step back and let him take over. As Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And I think that sums it up well. Seek first God's kingdom, and right stand with him, and all these things will be given to you as well. Things like being saved from the consequences of living a life apart from God. Instead, being reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, and then being embraced as part of a community of believers, just like here, being embraced into a community of believers. It's an amazing thing that comes as we step into the kingdom. Being transformed progressively into the image of Christ. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit to display love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. And being a people of hope, of confident expectation that God is with us now and will continue to be with us in the future. And he mentioned about being people of hope just before. It is an amazing thing to be people of hope. And that's a message that's incredibly worth sharing. We are a people of hope, so we naturally want to share that hope with others. God's kingdom is for sharing, not for holding on to. There is an open invitation to join God's kingdom and people who haven't heard need to know. So we need to be willing to share the kingdom, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15.
Have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honour him as Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. That's 1 Peter 3.15. So people around us, they notice how we go about our day. It could be that a work colleague asks you, why are you so calm as you go about your work? Or they could ask, aren't you anxious about the times we're living through? Be ready and prepared to answer, explaining the hope that you have within. Seek first God's kingdom and be ready to spread the news of God's kingdom. The kingdom is like a hidden treasure or a pool of incredibly great value. Thanks so much for joining us today on this podcast. We encourage you to let this word further help you live and share the life to the full that Jesus gives. If you want to check out more of our upcoming events, service times, locations, or to give online, head to c3hh.com.au forward slash give.